This morning, we're going to be looking at a pretty obscure figure called Melchizedek. Now, my guess would be that many of you probably have never, ever heard of him, and if you have heard of him, you'd probably struggle to explain his significance to our lives today. Like, Melchizedek isn't one of your Old Testament Sunday school heroes. He didn't slay any giants. He didn't cause any walls to fall down. He didn't wipe out thousands of Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey or anything like that. But the writer of Hebrews says that this guy teaches us some really very deep, very profound, very important things about Jesus. And so in a moment, I'm going to read you a chunk of Hebrews chapter 5. Then I'm going to, for the rest of the talk, dip into Hebrews chapter 7. But if it's okay with you, uh, I'm going to skip over Hebrews chapter 6, uh, at least until next time, so you don't need to worry. You'll get there in the end. Because although the writer brings up Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 5, then seems to get pretty hacked off with the people he's writing to, because he said that really they should already understand the deep significance of Melchizedek. In fact, he says that understanding him and how he points us to Jesus is actually a test of our spiritual maturity. And the fact that the Hebrews don't really know anything about him proves they aren't spiritually mature. And so the writer goes off on this rant in chapter 6 about the need for them to grow up so they can understand this kind of basic stuff. Now to be totally honest with you, I was seriously tempted myself just to skip over Melchizedek. But then when I got to the bit where it says that understanding him is a sign of maturity, I don't really want any of you showing up in heaven and some random stranger coming up to you one day and saying, hi, I'm Melchizedek, and you're going, Mel who? Because, let's face it, that doesn't look great on you, and it looks even worse on me because I failed to get you to one of the clear benchmarks in the Bible of spiritual maturity. So, all that being said, let's dive right in. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. Here's what it says. Every high priest is a man chosen to represent other people in their dealings with God. He presents their gifts to God and offers sacrifices for their sins. And he's able to deal gently with ignorant and wayward people because he himself is subject to the same weaknesses. That is why he must offer sacrifices for his own sins as well as theirs. And no one can become a high priest simply because he wants such an honour. No, he must be called by God for this work, just as Aaron was. That is why Christ did not honour himself by assuming he could become a high priest. No, he was chosen by God, who said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And in another passage, God said to him, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, Perhaps not for the first time in our study of the book of Hebrews, some of us are scratching our heads and wondering what on earth this has got to do with us today. Well, if you remember, just by way of context, 
the writer to the Hebrews, he's writing this letter to encourage those believers to persevere to the very end. You see, a whole bunch of their friends and their family members, they'd already decided to walk away from their faith in Jesus, and many of them had returned to their old Jewish lifestyle. And you know what? I reckon some of us perhaps attempted to do the same thing. I'm guessing probably not converting to Judaism, that isn't a massive temptation for most of us in the room, but I think we can at times be tempted to return to our previous way of living before we first encounter Jesus, or to simply put other things in our lives before Jesus. And so, although the arguments in this letter may not initially seem all that relevant, they're actually highly applicable for us today. Believe it or not, there is something about Melchizedek and understanding who he is, or more importantly, what he teaches us about Jesus. Something about getting that that will help strengthen our faith and increase our love and passion for Jesus. Interested in that? In which case, I will continue. And I'll tell you, that's a relief, there are two things I want to do in the rest of this message. First of all, I want to show you who exactly Melchizedek was, And then secondly, I want to unpack for you what it is he teaches us about Jesus. So first up, who was Melchizedek? Well, he's actually only mentioned two other times in the whole of the Bible. Anyone know the first time Melchizedek crops up? David. Round of applause for David. He's got knowledge. Uh, Genesis chapter 14, verse 17. Um, It's... Um, a pretty long story. I'm going to give you the, the briefer version. Abraham has gone out to protect his cousin Lot because Lot has made some pretty daft decisions in his life. Has ended up pretty much being taken hostage. Verse 17, after Abraham returned from his victory over Kedaloma and all his allies, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem and a priest of God Most High, brought Abram some bread and wine. Melchizedek blessed Abram. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of all the goods he had recovered. And so what we learn here is Melchizedek was a king and he was also a priest of the Most High God. And he seems to have appeared out of nowhere before then completely disappearing again. We we don't know where he comes from, who he descended from, how he came to know God, or who anointed him as God's priest. We know nothing about him. All we know is that after Abraham had won this battle, he wanted to thank God for the victory. So he was frantically looking around for some representative of God. He stumbles across this priest called Melchizedek, and he ties to him as an expression of his gratitude and thankfulness to God. And after that simple three-verse reference, Melchizedek disappears and isn't brought up again for a thousand years when David completely randomly makes a prophecy in Psalm 110 about the coming Messiah, saying that he would be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, which is the prophecy that's quoted here in Hebrews chapter 5. But that's it. That's all that's in the Bible about Melchizedek before Hebrews. We don't know a whole lot more about him, but we do know that there is an important connection between him and Jesus. And if you don't understand that, 
then you are not mature in your faith. So, secondly, what does Melchizedek teach us about Jesus? Four things, and I've got to tip you off. The first point, the second point, and the fourth point are unusually short, and I'm going to compensate by making the third point unusually long, just so you know, so you get your bearings as we're going through this. So four things. What does Melchizedek teach us about Jesus? Number one, like Melchizedek, Jesus is both a king and also a priest. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1, it says, this Melchizedek was king of the city of Salem and also a priest of God Most High. Now, king and priest were two very distinct roles that were never combined by anyone in the whole of the Old Testament other than Melchizedek. And in reality, you wouldn't really want to combine those two roles. You see, the king was the lawgiver. He was the judge over and above the people. The priest was more like a friend or a counsellor, someone who could sympathise with people in their weaknesses and gently help them whenever they'd messed up. If you like, the king represented God to the people, the priest represented the people to God. And they never combined those roles in the Old Testament because one person simply couldn't do both. Melchizedek was the one exception, and the next was Jesus. Verse 14 says that Jesus wasn't from the tribe of Levi, where all the other Old Testament priests were from. Now, he was from the tribe of Judah, which was the kingly tribe. So the question is, if Jesus is the king, how can he rule with perfect justice, but in a way that sympathizes with us in our weakness? How can God both be just while also being close to us who have committed many acts of injustice? Well, the answer that the writer of Hebrews points us to is the cross. The cross was where the absolute justice of God met the fullness of his mercy. The debt we owed to God our King was paid in full by God our priest. We were sentenced to die and Jesus died in our place so that now God can relate to us with mercy and acceptance without ever compromising his justice one bit. So first of all then, Melchizedek points us to Jesus, our perfect king and priest. Secondly, like Melchizedek, Jesus is without beginning and end. Hebrews chapter 7 verse 3 says this, there is no record of Melchizedek's father or mother or any of his ancestors, no beginning or end to his life. He remains a priest forever, resembling the Son of God. Now back in that culture, being without a father, it meant being considered by others as being illegitimate. Someone without a mother was a child of a woman of pretty low social status. And having no record of your ancestors would have absolutely disqualified you from ever becoming a priest. And yet Melchizedek was recognized by Abraham as a priest of God Most High. And since there's no record anywhere of his birth and his death, now the writer isn't saying that he wasn't born at some point or that he never died, but there's no record of it. Uh, so it's as though his priesthood is unending. 
all of which points to Jesus. His priesthood doesn't depend on being born into a priestly family. And like with Melchizedek, only in a much, much, much greater way, the priesthood of Jesus continues uninterrupted forever. Which leads to our third and much longer point. So get ready. Like Melchizedek, Jesus lives to make intercession for us. As a priest, Melchizedek represented the people before God. But his work was never, ever done. He constantly had to keep bringing sacrifices to cover the sin of the people. However, in Hebrews 7, verse 25, we're told that Jesus is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Now, this word intercede doesn't just mean something that priests do, it also has a legal meaning. In the court of law, someone would intercede for you, representing you before the judge. And I think really this helps us get to the heart of what this means for us today. Now bear with me on this. I want all of you to picture in your mind now, so use your imagination, I want you to picture what you look like. Okay, have you done that? You've got an image in your mind of what you at least hope you look like. Some of you are struggling with this. Uh, get a mirror out or something. You, you've all got an image, or hopefully you can kind of vaguely think what you looked like last time you cared to look in the mirror. Now, a guy called Tim Keller, who I often quote around here, he refers to an article in the New York Times where the writer says this, more than 40 years of looking at myself in the mirror have left me, like so many women I know, almost totally ignorant of what I actually look like. The mirror image I see is not a real reflection at all, but a composite of memories and wishes and half-truths. By now, I've learned to live with my shadowy self-image. I know there's a real me lurking somewhere, even though I can't see her. And the writer then goes on to explain that you don't keep the pictures you hate, you throw them away or you delete them so no one can see them. You, you only keep the pictures you like and you want other people to see. You, you don't even look in the mirror at certain angles, do you? You come to learn there are, there are certain angles you want to look at yourself, others you really don't. In other words, you kind of walk around with an image or a picture in your head of what you hope you look like to other people, but you're kind of afraid you don't. And that's just the physical, because you also walk around with an image in your head of what you look like as a person to people, what your character is like, or what your soul is like. Are you a lovable person, or are you a hard-to-love person? Are you generous or mean? Are you a good person or a bad person? How good are you? How bad are you? Are you beautiful or are you ugly morally, spiritually, personally? It's like we all walk around with an image in our heads of what we hope to be, of how we hope we look to other people, but all the time, deep down inside, we're, we're kind of afraid we don't. Now, here's what's interesting. However hard you try, 
you can't not care about this. No matter how hard you've tried, if you really think you can live satisfied with your own evaluation of yourself, your own verdict of yourself, your own pronouncement of whether you're good or bad or beautiful or ugly, you can't. You can't live just with your own evaluation. You desperately, at some point, need pronouncement or opinion from outside. It's like your whole life is a trial. Your whole life, you're, you're after the verdicts of the people around you. You're looking for approval. You're looking for acceptance. You're looking for praise and affirmation from others. It's like you need other people in some way to validate you, to make you feel important or significant. And so you're always trying to show that there's something about you that makes you worthy of everyone's love and admiration, something that kind of sets you apart from others, like you're really clever or you've got a great body or you're a great athlete or you make loads of money or you're fair and open-minded and progressive and recycle and don't leave a huge carbon footprint or whatever. It's like everybody has something that they think is setting them apart, something that's making them a good and worthy person. And so you may not believe in God but you still, deep down, feel the need to have external validation. At the end of the day, really all you've done is replace God's opinion with other people's opinions. If you like, they have become a functional God to you, and you still need a go-between to establish your worthiness, your importance, your significance in their eyes. So your personal accomplishments are like your priest that establishes your worth. Now, the Bible tells you the reason for all of this, the reason you're desperate for this validation from others is because you have an inner sense of your separation from God. In other words, you crave the acceptance of God even if you've never realized that's what you're craving. And so, while your mind might not admit there's a God, your heart kind of knows without a doubt. I suggest that underneath all of the efforts to get verdicts from other people, verdicts about how you look physically, how you're doing in your job, how you are morally, personally, underneath it all, you are looking for a word from the Lord of the universe. You see, there really is an ultimate court before which we are all appearing. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10 makes it crystal clear that one day every single one of us will appear before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account for our lives. The real question is, are you going to walk into that courtroom alone or not? Every so often, you see a TV show or a film, won't you, where the accused decides to be their own lawyer. Uh, and sometimes they win the trial. I mean, that makes a great story. But all real legal experts know that actually never happens in real life. It, it's an absolute disaster to be in court without any legal representative, without an advocate. To, to be your own representative simply does not 
work. And the message here in this passage in Hebrews is you don't have to go alone. In fact, people who go alone are crazy. People who think they can be good enough by themselves are deluded. They can say, look, I'm living a pretty good life. I'm doing very well for myself. I'm a very moral person. I really don't feel like any need for outside help. They kind of hope their performance will be enough to get them through. And I'm not just talking about people out there somewhere. You know, an awful lot of people think being a Christian is simply coming to a church meeting like this and having Jesus as your example, where you pray to him and sing songs to him and occasionally ask him for help when you're in trouble and try as hard as you can to live like he lived. But that's effectively to appear in court and be your own representative. At the end of the day, that is a disaster. Really, it's the opposite of understanding Jesus as the one who eternally intercedes for us. Now, for many years, this whole idea that Jesus intercedes for us before the Father, it was of no comfort for me whatsoever. One of the reasons was, it just all seemed a little bit bizarre. I mean, I couldn't really imagine what it was all about. It just seemed a, a bit odd. It was also of no comfort to me because I completely misunderstood what was happening, what it was all about. Here's what I thought was really happening. I, I kind of imagined Jesus coming before the Father every day with a massive caseload. Uh, and he'd pull out a folder with my name on it and start pleading for mercy on my behalf. Like, you remember all those promises that Jonathan made to change? Well, would you believe it? He's doing it again anyway. But please, give him a break. I mean, for my sake, give him one more chance. I'm sure he means well. And you never know. This time, he might actually make it. And anyway, you owe me. Remember I went to earth and did all that stuff? I mean, I'm begging for you to show mercy to my client. And all the time, I, I had this picture in my mind of the father kind of begrudgingly saying, well, all right, if you insist. Now, here's the reason why that was of no comfort to me. Because I understood the intercessory work of Christ as being all about trying to get mercy out of the Father. I thought to myself, how long can he keep that up? I mean, there's no particular reason why the Father couldn't just turn around one day and say, look, enough's enough, I've had it. He can't keep living like that. It's over. I've had it with him. He's had his last chance. But that is not at all the kind of advocate or intercessor that Jesus is. He, he doesn't merely wheedle and cajole and emotionally manipulate the judge in an attempt to get us mercy. I mean, that is of no comfort at all, because if you think about it, when you ask for mercy, that really means you've already lost the case. Listen, what we're being told here is something altogether more powerful and more profound. Jesus stands right now as your representative before the ultimate throne in the ultimate trial before the only court in the universe which truly counts. And do you know what he's doing up there? Well, look at verse 27. 
unlike those other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day. They did this for their own sins first and then for the sins of the people. But Jesus did this once for all when he offered himself as the sacrifice for the people's sins. He's saying, Father, you demand justice. You are a just God and the people on whose behalf I'm speaking are undeniably guilty. But I've made payment on their behalf. There's my blood shed for them. And it'd be unjust to get two payments for the same debt. And so, because I've made payment for this debt already, I'm not here pleading for mercy. No, I demand justice. Your very justice and righteousness demands your complete embrace and acceptance of them throughout all eternity. Remember how it says in 1 John 1 verse 9, if we confess our sins, he, our heavenly Father, is faithful and, what's the word? Just to forgive us our sins. You know what that's saying? It doesn't say God's faithful and merciful. No, the intercessory work of Jesus who lived the life you should have lived and died the death you should have died in your place, he has changed things forever. So now the very law and righteousness and justice of God demands your acceptance. To have Jesus interceding for you is to have that kind of confidence forever. Now here's the litmus test of whether or not you get this. When you approach God, do you ever think he's not really interested in you? Or worse still, that he's angry with you? Or that what you have done has in some way disqualified you? If you're always kind of yo-yoing up and down in your relationship with God, if you feel like God must be really pleased with you right now because you've had a great week, or if something goes wrong, you immediately assume that, well, God's punishing me now, that shows you think God relates with you on the basis of your performance. Look, the good news, and it really is good news, the good news of the gospel is that it's not about you doing enough to get to God, but God having done enough to save you. The mark of empty religion is this constant fear of not having quite done enough. The mark of the gospel is assurance based not on what you have done, because there's not a whole lot of assurance there, but what Jesus has done being sufficient to save you forever and ever and ever. As I've tried to show you, whether or not you believe in God every day, actually you are trying to prove yourself to others. You're desperately trying to represent yourself. But what's all of that compared to this? I would humbly suggest that Jesus is the one you've been looking for all your life. All along, his affirmation, his praise, his approval, his validation 
is the one you've been seeking in your constant quest for affirmation and praise and love from others. And you know what? Right now, he's standing here inviting you to come very close. Whatever you're trying to prove in your life, whatever it is you think you're rebelling against, however well or badly you think you're doing right now, won't you wake up to the fact it's not working for you? It'll never satisfy you for long. So won't you come to the one who has done all the work for you already? The one who will forever paint you in the best light, show you from the best perspective. The only one who, whose really opinion only is the one that only matters, God Most High, who through Jesus' work on the cross now invites you to approach him as your heavenly Father. I mean, why wouldn't you? What's stopping you? So thirdly then, Melchizedek points to the eternal effectiveness of Jesus' intercession for us before the Father. Now, if all of that is true, then fourthly and finally and very quickly, like Melchizedek, Jesus surely deserves our first and our best. Not to earn anything from him, but because he's already given it all to us in his grace. Beginning of chapter 7, alludes back to Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Remember how after Abraham had won the battle, he wasn't kind of arrogantly strutting around saying, look what I did, look, look at my accomplishment, look at my victory. No, he was straight away looking for someone to thank. Verse 2 tells us, Abraham took a tenth of all he had captured in battle and gave it to Melchizedek. He was thanking this future picture of Jesus, the king and the high priest, for the victory he had received. And in the same way today, we who have been saved by the real Jesus surely ought to thank him with our first and our best. You know, if we're honest, I think most of us from time to time slip into this mindset where we think that we've got where we are in our own strengths. Like, we worked really hard. We got the job. We put in the long hours. Now, there might be an element of truth in that. But just think about all the things you depend on that you didn't earn. Like your health. Where you were born. Your skills, the talents that God gave you. At the end of the day, actually it all comes from God. And the moment you understand that, the moment you begin to grasp the sheer lavishness of God's goodness to you, that's when you decide to give back generously to Him as an expression of your gratitude. Not because you have to, not to try and earn anything from Him. It's just you want to thank Him. And one of the ways you, you get to do that is by giving to Him the first and the best of what He's given you. Whether it's your money, your talents, your work, your time, everything. Now might I suggest, if you're not doing this, it might just be that you don't fully grasp how much greater than Melchizedek Jesus really is. Or as the writer of the Hebrews would put it, you're not yet spiritually mature. Because if you've understood 
And if you've experienced firsthand who Jesus is and what he's done for you, then you will show it by giving him the first and the best of everything you've got. Not reluctantly, not begrudgingly, but with joy. So all that being said, here's the point. Melchizedek, if you're wondering, is in the Bible to show us, really, it's all about Jesus. That Jesus is glorious because he's both a king and a priest. That Jesus is without beginning or end, and so his priesthood, that lasts forever. That Jesus lives forever to make intercession for us. And that in response, the first and the best of all we have belongs to him. Now, truth be told, the book of Hebrews, it doesn't seem like the most practical of books, does it? It doesn't give you five easy steps to improve your marriage or raise your kids or succeed in your job. Again and again, all it does is point us to Jesus and try and show us that Above it all, he is the greatest. And in reality, that's what you need more than anything else. Because seeing Jesus for who he really is, well, that changes everything else. 